3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Listening to 3CR. Good morning, Edwin. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Will here. Hello. Hello, Will. Hi, Dean. Judith. Morning, Will. Judith. <laughs> and yeah. It's the 28th of November. Mm. 28 days left until the bearded burglar comes down the chimney. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can't believe it. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Actual real Santa Claus. You, you weren't yeah. Expecting, you weren't expecting that. No, I don't have a chimney, but I do have an extractor fan in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that'll work? Yeah. 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 He, he fits in anywhere. He fits in anywhere. God knows nothing actually goes up it. So, um, you yeah, know, all that mold. Mm. He has to improvise <laughs> with our modern architecture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. Um, so what what are we what are we up to this week? Well, late, later after eight o'clock, we've got uh, quite a few things on. We've got um, uh, a, a story from the gar- uh, sorry from the conversation um, about um, new laws that are oh. about to be introduced um, on citizenship stripping, and that will be with Dr. Sagita Pillai. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Oh. Yeah, and you're right, Judith. We have a lot going on after eight o'clock, so we've got to. Sc- <laughs> squeeze in three different <laughs> we do yeah, wow. yeah. so eight o'clock we're going to have a quick interview about uh, her place which is Australia's first uh, women's museum that's mm. been established and yeah we've got uh, the, the doctor coming on talking about the federal government and then we have an interview about uh, with the Boomerang Alliance about uh, plastic pollution in our oceans. 115 oh, plastic cups yeah. killed, a, killed a whale and it ended up beached off. Um, yeah so we'll be, we'll be talking yeah. about that kind of um, that incident that happened think a week or so now ago mm. which was yeah quite quite shocking the image of yeah. the dead sperm whale on the coast of indonesia mm. uh but we'll be using that to kind of springboard off and look at what we can be doing about plastic pollution mm. Mm. Sure earlier in the show um we're expecting a bit of poetry 750 we'll be hearing <laughs> from former spoken word host on 3cr coralie dimitriadis um who's going to be talking about her latest book just give me the pills and it's about <laughs> it's about um Divorce and recovery, and um, sort of the the heavy expectations of being a woman in, in the Australian Greek society, and so we're going to be talking about that. Um, uh, we'll try to keep it light, but you know they're quite serious serious topics. Yeah. Um, uh, who are we hearing from at seven thirty five? Uh, what's Joy Demusi talking about? Uh, Joy Demusi is a laureate fellow and professor of history at University of Melbourne, and she's talk- talking about um, her response to former Education Minister Simon Birmingham vetoing 11 Australian Research Council grants in um, before he actually left. I think Dan Tian now is the Education Minister, but he um, it, it's in relation to, I guess, the humanities and some of the grants that go into the humanities and social sciences courses and, I guess, the value of being able to have those research grants. You know, we talk about the universities in Australia 
being the highest economic earner, essentially, mm. with international students coming over. Mm. But our brain drain is happening because people like Simon Birmingham are vetoing things they know nothing about and yes, not allowing exactly. researchers They're to have grants. Uh, disconcerting, really mm. worrying stuff. So yeah. I'm interested in, in finding out about what some of those grants are. I know nothing about the education sector, but we have had the uh, education union here talking to us about mm-hmm. the casualisation of universities, yes. mm. and that might have some effect on this. But we've also got Debbie Brennan coming up Old in friend 15 of the show. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that'll be good. And she's going to be talking about um, an event coming up, not this weekend, but next weekend, which will honour Ray Jackson, a Wiradjuri activist and warrior for justice, who is also well known to people at 3CR. Yeah. Mm. Stand, so. Uh, so, I like how you said, not this weekend, mm. but next weekend. Next Does week- anyone here not have their whole weekends booked for the <laughs> next three weeks? It just <laughs> seems like there's just, no. just all these weird things just keep popping up. It's like, mm. I've got to do oh. this, I've got to do mm. that, I've got to do we this. We actually have <laughs> some events that we'll be talking about in Alternative News. That's yep. very true. So we're going to get to Alternative News, because yep. as you heard, we've got a pretty packed show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be back after this. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, who? And that was the wonderful Nitty Gritty by the Shir- by Shirley Ellis, bringing us into alternative news where we look at um, oh, stories from a different angle to the mainstream media. Mm. Yeah. Um, not quite fitting that brief, though. I just want to mention two quick um, events that are coming up very soon. Um, so this December the 1st, that's Saturday, uh, West Papuans are going to be uh, raising their Morningstar flag in defiance of the Indonesian government. Um, there are a lot of people who are campaigning for um, independence or autonomy in West Papua. West Papuans um, are forbidden from raising their flag. They can face up to 12 years in jail in Indonesia for raising the Morningstar flag. And so um, in solidarity with people um, fighting for independence or um, sovereignty in West Papua, at 12 p.m. this Saturday, the Trades Hall in um, in the centre of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be raising the, the Morningstar flag and then um, heading down to the State Library as well. Um, will that be for a demonstration at the State Library? Yes, yeah, yes. And they'll be, um, people to mm, that's right, yeah. And you'll, uh, you'll get to meet some of our folks who do Voice of West Papua as well um, because yes. they'll be participating in that and helping to organise it. Um, also, Masil, um, if you're not familiar with Masil, they are the Mapuche Aboriginal Struggles for Ind- Indigenous Land forming links between um, indigenous struggles here in Australia and indigenous struggles over in um, so-called Chile and Argentina. Um, they're raising dollars 
for muscle and so there's going to be a dance party and there's going to be music and food um and, and they do it so well yes oh my <laughs> goodness um that's going to be december the first again so on saturday so after you finish over at the state library and the trades hall head over to um 62 st george's road in northcote um and the um there's going to be um all of these bands i'm not going to list all the bands um there's something called dj facilitated discussion and i'm not sure if that's <laughs> a facilitated discussion and a dj or if the dj's name is facilitated discussion which is a fantastic name you'll have to go along <laughs> to find out well <laughs> mc radical back. acceptance <laughs> yeah um so yeah and the event is on unseated Wurundjeri land um so um it's, it's a great it's a great thing to go along and support Massel mapuche aboriginal struggles for indigenous land 7 p.m 62 st george's road this saturday yeah. First day of summer, and the trams will be back on St George's Road Ooh. as well, ah, just for those excellent. who are yeah. PT. Well, well, along the lines of announcements, we'll, um, I'm just going to hop over to Adelaide in oh. uh, March next year. Oh. Uh, because I think Eidwin's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Because Pussy Riot is ah, performing what? at the Adelaide Fringe Festival no way. in no its first way. Australian show. Yes. I might have to. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought so. I thought you might. <laughs> I might be able to get you a place to stay if you let me know. I have Ooh, a few friends. That, that, that's a very nice idea. No, that. Yeah. that Whoa. I know. <laughs> so three, mem- three members of Pussy yeah. Riot are. Um, going to be there wait sorry i should i'm pretty sure anyway tickets go on sale tomorrow when they announce the fringe program i think it's early march i'm just looking for here to see exactly which day but it's going to be part of the royal croquet club and um um, oh, Adelaide. Uh, well, the, no, no, not <laughs> the Royal Croquet it's a, it's Club. A kind of Adelaide. Se- no, it's a, a kind of venue. <laughs> I know it sounds a bit weird. It's a venue for the Fringe. Yeah, I would have thought Womad might have been their style, but they don't want to be too controversial. <laughs> oh, no, 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 yeah. no. Mm. <laughs> um, oh, is God. speaking of great feminists, mm-hmm. yes. is Julia yeah. Banks a feminist hero? MP Julia Banks, who just left the Liberal Party because of the toxic masculine. Um, atmosphere and behaviour of her colleagues in the Liberal Party. Not she, bad. Not she's, bad um, she's a hero, yeah? Well, she <laughs> is, except that she wasn't she the person who could survive on a new start allowance? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she, could, she said that she could easily survive on $40 a day. And this yes. was rebuffed by the Business Council coming out and saying that, no, you couldn't. <laughs> um, the but, business no, council? Uh, but I don't want to dampen down the significance mm. of her leaving the Liberal no. Party. Yeah. I no, think that's, that's important, true. and I think it you know, takes mm. some guts to do that and yeah. stand up. And yeah. so, you know, so let's not detract d- straight no, away, but it, yeah. it's good to have a, you know, the broad holistic, picture. Of holistic the person, picture. Holistic mm. picture, yeah. yes, of the person. Definitely the political, it, it's whatever a political life has been, has been, you know. Up until now, the narrative. Yeah. However, this move is an interesting one because it really is rejecting a form of really toxic culture we've got going in Australia. And in, I can I can appreciate I can appreciate what she's trying to do, what she's trying to well, say. Well, um, some people have emphasised this is about the Liberal Party. I think this mm. is um, uh, is this Kathy McGowan who's made this comment? No, uh, uh, Rebecca Sharkey from Centre Alliance, who herself used to be a li- former Liberal Party staffer, mm-hmm. talking about how. Um, when when they talk about a toxic culture in the Liberal Party, yeah. quote, we're not saying anything radical here, we're just attuned to the wider Australian community values and expectations, end quote. So it's not a rejection of a toxic masculinity oh, in Australian okay. con- society oh. in general, at least on Rebecca Sharkey's point of view, mm-hmm. who's supporting yeah. Julia Banks now. Um, but 
a repudiation of the Liberal Party in particular. Okay. Um, which, great. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, and then so, and some cynics might say she yeah. was a bit bitter mm-hmm. that, you know, there was that fallout with Malcolm Turnbull, mm-hmm. so she was on she Malcolm's was side, so, Malcolm you know, yeah. and, and, but hopefully, you know, as she said, um, it's, she, it, her actions are all about the, the right wing who talk about themselves, um, rather than listening to the people. So, she said she was acting in the nation's, um, mm-hmm. interests. Or her her interest in the nations haven't changed. So we'll be talking about what is in the national interest later on. But yeah, it's quite a fine line where mm. where it sits. Her the Julia Banks resignation within the political framework. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, just with you know that happening on the liberal side on the labor side, uh, Daniel Andrews is doing the whole platform of you know 50% women in our cabinet. That's just how it's going to be. You know that's the right way. Yeah. That's the smart yeah. way. So it's it's fascinating how um, oh, I suppose it's being carved up politically <laughs> into the opposing sides. Mm. But but I I, I um I I think. It's great that Daniel Andrews is going down that path. I know my mm. my mm, old co-host. You know he he won't speak on any panels unless fifty um, percent of the panelists are women. Yeah. And that he's been doing that for the last um, two years or so. Yeah. You know, and for that government to move forward in that way, it's that's very, very true. And that's positive. something um, I know three CR is very attuned to um, is the fact that a lot of our breakfast shows we we tried to get that balance mm. between. Um, well, male, female, and everyone's voices, and try, yeah, try yeah. to try to get that contrast because it's not even contrast that that yeah. cr- true cross section, rather than you know your more dominated. Mm. And uh, you know, talk about repudiations of the Liberal Party the mm-hmm. election on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, I, I was still asking people on Saturday, even late in the afternoon, if they knew who the leader of the opposition to Daniel Andrews was and most people still didn't have a clue but they went to vote really you know so that's how low-lying matthew guy is wow Uh, you know this guy's had the opportunity to just sell himself and sell the liberal party for the last Mm. two and a half three years and he's just done nothing for Mm. for the liberal party you know not that he's someone that i would have liked to vote for anyway but i don't know i don't he's just so quiet yeah you know that's right i I went to get get petrol on the evening on saturday evening and the person at petrol station said i picked up paper and he said okay who's who's gonna win who's gonna win the election i said oh well you know no no and uh he said come on come on come on (laughs) give me a good guess guess. i'll give you some good odds yeah so i said well you know i think labor's uh, got a good chance they're good aren't they they're good they do good they do good things yeah we're yeah victoria's a good place to live because of them so i thought well this is one enthusiast (laughs) at any rate everyone knows a lot of our politics around this time of the year Yeah, yeah for sure everyone's the uh expert. Talking about uh, newspapers, headlines and all that, do we have anything interesting on the papers today? I, I, I know um, last week, I think, uh, was the one-year anniversary of Australia saying yes to same-sex marriage uh, yes, through the yep. postal vote. And it's, uh, it's fascinating that on page three of, of the Financial Review, it talks, one of the stories is gay couples rush to tie the knot. Uh, that happened a lot last year. Is it still mm. continuing? Yeah. So it talks about um, mm-hmm. over 3,149 couples have tied the knot since that. Yeah. Um, 
and now now it's just talking about how there's uh, there's 39 more weddings to go. Is that really newsworthy for page three? <laughs> really? That I reckon <laughs> the the connotations of rushes to get married. It's like, well, no, they're just exercising their right to get yeah, married yeah. after you've finally, and I mean finally, yeah. legalized it. <laughs> like it's it, this is not something that all of a sudden is sparks, you know, they want to get married. It's like, no, no, they've been wanting to get married for a long time. This yeah. is the final you know, yeah. ability to. At least of wanting to have the choice. At least wanting to have the choice, exactly. Because, yeah. um, yeah. you know, lots of people don't want to get married or, you know, decide that that's just not something for them and mm. uh, everyone should be able to do do what they wish around those issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, mm. definitely. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's a, there was a story in The Guardian um, that Nick Cave is showing us a gentler way to use the Internet, and he's inviting uh, questions and comments from his fans and followers and uh, is going to respond to them personally. So if you're a fan, you might want to get on the Internet and see what's happening there. Maybe indeed. Well, we're going to quickly have a song and then actually get into our first interview. So this is from Queenscliff Musical Festival, which I was lucky enough to get to this weekend. Um, Music review. Yep. This is um, from a band called This Way is North with Nothing to Say. And that was This Way North with Nothing to Say. We're actually now going to go straight into our first interview. Judith, take it away. Yes, and we have on the line Debbie Brennan, who's a representative of Radical Women, which is one of the groups organizing an event, not this weekend, but the following one, to honor Wiradjuri activist and warrior for justice, Ray Jackson. Debbie, thanks for coming on so early, and welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. My pleasure, and thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, so Debbie, it's been over three years now since uh, Ray Jackson passed away, but his legacy is as strong as ever from, you know, from what I'm seeing. Can you just tell us a bit about his work and what made him so special? Yes, um, Ray Jackson um, was a Wiradjuri from uh, New South Wales. He was a, a, a unionist. He was actively a socialist, a feminist, a internationalist, so he was politically involved in his entire life. Um, and he's someone who many of us, very active in the movements, whether it be in the um, Aboriginal struggle or in in the feminist or the socialist and union movements and so on, we came to know him very well. And um, Radical Women, for example, worked with him for well over 20 years. So he was someone who... Sorry, I was going to say, that's a long time. And so how did you first meet him? How did Radical Women get in contact with him first up? Yeah, well, with with our sister organization, the Freedom Socialist Party, we were working with um, the Bundjalung people of northern New South Wales um, who had um, been miners uh, in in a site called Bayugal and uh, owned by several asbestos mining companies, but the biggest one was James Hardy Industries. And we were working with them. Um, They were fighting for compensation for asbestos contamination and deaths since. And uh, we went and saw Ray Jackson for the first time. He was the president 
of the Aboriginal Deaths and Custody Watch Committee in Sydney. And um, so that's where we met him. And he, of course, knowing and appreciating what that struggle was all about, um, became immediately involved. And it just went from there. Yes, and, and can you tell me a little bit about the Aboriginal Deaths and Custody Watch Committee? I understand it yes. was formally constituted from 1987 to 1997. That's correct. So that came out of the... Well, that was also the time of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody. And all of this had come out of a strong um, grassroots fight by families of um, those who died in custody. Uh, and so the Watch Committee was, it was a very special kind of a committee. It was um, there to not only fight to expose the cause of the deaths in custody, and these are, uh, which would of course expose the, the racism of the, of the justice system and the fact that uh, many Aboriginal people have been actually killed in custody. It was not only there to expose this, but also it was there to support prisoners, Aboriginal prisoners, and families. Um, of those who had died in custody. It was a very, very, um, a very vibrant organization that, that Ray was president of. He also, um, during that time and afterwards, was a, um, a, an official visitor to prisoners, so he played an extremely critical role um, over decades in supporting prisoners and their families. Yes, and I did uh, read that uh, when funding officially ended in 1997, his home became the center for um, looking at and monitoring those deaths and for the custody watch yeah. committee. Can, can uh, have you did you ever visit? I'm just going <laughs> the term that was used, Chateau Waterloo. <laughs> Chateau Waterloo, I did many, many times, um, as did many people. It was a happening place. And, and what was, in, just explain uh, what, where it was and what, what was happening. Yes. yes, he lived on the 13th floor of a huge um, public housing uh, building. There are a few of them there. And ironically, his building was called James Cook, which, um, oh. well, I guess he just sort of um, tolerated. Uh, and so he called it Chateau Waterloo, and uh, it was just this little, little teeny two-bedroom flat. And um, his his little flat, as you said, was the organizing center for um, the Watch Committee, and later for the Indigenous Social Justice Association, which he he founded. Um, and it was just it was stacked from floor to ceiling with with documents, with books, with just about everything you can imagine, even had a photocopier in it and his computer and his his recording machines and so on were just going all the time as well as his phone. And uh, it was also just a meeting place and people would come and stay when they were visiting Sydney, you know, interstate, international visitors. So um, it, was, it was quite a unique, 
a unique place. Yes, and I understand his hospitality was was uh, legendary and, uh, and it, it, generous, as you say. Ab- absolutely was, and it was full of artworks too, artworks which included those of his grandchildren and so on. So it was. Uh, Again, it was it was an experience to behold. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the poster that's being launched in Ray Jackson's honor on um, December 8th, I believe it is. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. On December 8th, which is a Saturday, yes. um, the poster it's um, it's part of a a project by. Um, uh, an organization, it's actually an artist cooperative in North America called Just Seeds, and Just Seeds does all sorts of projects, but one of them is called a Celebrate People's Histories um, poster project, and um, there are well over a hundred posters um, done by you know, coming out of various struggles, and it could be anything from the Wisconsin workers' strike to um, to uh, commemorating Fred Hampton, the um, Black Panther, and so on. So this poster is one that um, some activists here in um, in Australia initiated, and uh, they worked with Ray's family um, on this poster in designing it, in producing it, and then distributing it. And so it's a poster commemorating Ray. And it's a it's a it's a rather uh, it's a beautiful poster. Yes, and, and, and you can way, see it. I mean, I went online last night to to just yes. check. So if you go to the Just Seeds Celebrate People's History series, and Just yes. Seeds is all one word, Just J U S Seeds. It's at the bottom of, of the of the posters, and and Ray is certainly in there with some well-known people, like you know Woody Guthrie, Emma Goldman, mm-hmm. Malcolm X, the women who demonstrated against their children being disappeared. I mean, it's it's a great yes. series. It's a beautiful series, and what it's about it's there to to not let history, important history, be hidden, which it usually is. And so those who are um, all the struggles and the people commemorated in that series, including Ray, are, are, are there because they come from the grassroots. Yes. And who's going to be speaking at the launch on Saturday? Okay. Now, speakers are going to be um, uh, among those who, first of all, organized, and I'll mention who organized this. Yes, um, please do. First yes. Nations Workers Alliance the Indigenous Social Justice Association of Melbourne, the Freedom Socialist Party, the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre, Radical Women, and also Sharon Dev Singh, who was one of those who initiated the poster. Now, um, so speakers will be among these organizations, but also um, Latoya Aroha um, Hohapa, who is a Wiradjuri Maori woman, um, is going to speak. She, her brother, Wayne Phila Morrison, was killed in custody two years ago. So, so um, sad. And that's going through a coronial inquiry now. Mm. Also, Gary Foley, who has quite a history in his own right, um, who was one of the leaders of the tent embassy of the 1970s. He was a consultant 
to the uh, Royal Commission, Aboriginal Deaths in Custody uh, Commission. He's now a professor at Victoria University. He's going to speak because he has a very close association with Ray as well. And um, though these are all the confirmed speakers, and there are still some to be confirmed. And I understand the weekend is going to be conducted uh, in the spirit of Ray Jackson's work. Yes, it is. And so um, on, on Saturday is going to be um, not only the official poster launch, but there's going to be this beautiful exhibition, um, which are going to be featuring Ray's artwork as political T-shirts, badges, and so on, many posters. That's going to be running Saturday and Sunday. Also, on Sunday from 10 till 5, there's going to be workshops run by um, the organizing groups and also um, by a delegation um, going who will who have returned from going to an Imagine Abolition, that is Abolition of Prisons conference in Brisbane. So they'll be reporting back. And the point of this whole weekend is to not only honor Ray, but to act on his legacy. And oh, so um, yes. these workshops in particular are going to be about people who come to end up getting involved or continuing to be involved, to be moving these, these movements forward, whether they be Aboriginal, Union, Feminist, LGBTIQ, etc. movements that Ray was so much active in throughout his life. Debbie, that sounds like an amazing weekend, and thank you so much for coming on the show this morning to talk about Ray Jackson and to tell us about the weekend. And we can yes. put on our website the details. Understand it? It starts uh, uh, at 12:30 on uh, Saturday, the 8th of December. But we can put that information up. Yes, thank you very much, and it's very fitting that it's being held at the Maritime Union. Um, uh, building in, in West, Br in West uh, Melbourne, because that's a part of his history as well. Okay. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank, thank you, you, Judith. Yeah. And we're now going to have some community service announcements, and we'll be back after that. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Shane Jacobson for an evening featuring performances by Casey Donovan and many more. Bring along a picnic and celebrate under the stars with a riverside pyrotechnic display to conclude the night. Carols at Como Park, Sunday, December 16, from 7.30pm. See the City of Stonington website for more details. A 3CR supporter. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. 
These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're listening to 3CR. And it's uh, 7.35 and it's time now to get our next guest on the line. Um, recently, Australians learned that uh, former Education Minister Simon Birmingham had vetoed 11 Australian Research Council grants despite the uh, Australian Research Council's rigorous peer review process and the Minister did not provide reasons for his secret intervention which resulted in a cut of $4.1 million to grants in the humanities sector. Uh, and I guess not for the first time, it, it, um, the humanities sector has been targeted in a way that does not apply to science or technology. And there has been some response from academics who, I guess, are baffled and bemused by the former Education Minister, Simon Birmingham's decision. We are joined now by um, the current President of the National Peak Body for the Humanities in Australia uh, and the Australian Academy of the Humanities, but also a Professor of History at the University of Melbourne, Joy Damuzi. Good morning, Joy. Hello. Did I pronounce your last name correctly there? Sorry. You did. I just, I just paused there and I was waiting, but you did a beautiful job. Yes, that's Thank you. Um, so uh, I guess you're, you wrote the article protecting the national interest, um, which, you know, responds to former Education Minister uh, Simon Birmingham vetoing these uh, 11 Australian research grants. Can you give us a little bit of an insight as to what those grants were and why this decision is so nonsensical? Well, it's um, well. The, there were 11, well, there were eleven grants that were vetoed by um, Simon Birmingham, and they're all in the humanities. So that's one issue that um, is particularly disturbing. I mean, I think vetoing any grant is a worry, but um, they seem all to be from the um, humanities area. Um, and um, they range from a whole, you know, diff- different um, different uh, themes and different uh, aspects of humanities research. But um, what's telling is that they're never in the sciences. And I think from the humanities sector, we're concerned that humanities particularly come under scrutiny and attack, if you like. Um, so that's the first thing to say. Um, and, you know, Birmingham's um, response is... Uh, that it was not in the national interest, that he didn't believe those topics and that research um, should be um, undertaken. Now, as a breaking news and um, keeping um, up to date with this, yesterday the current round was announced and three of the vetoed grants were resubmitted and got through this round. So that's really interesting. But it does leave the others um, uh, vulnerable and the other grants unfunded, which were accepted and approved by the peer review process. So I guess the, the, the sort of big issue here really is if you set up a peer review process, mm. um, uh, for, for a minister to come on top of that is very disturbing. And for and I guess you you know you mentioned that he said they weren't in the nation's interest. The, the humanities are, are the heart of our culture and of our knowledge, and I guess their relevance is a constant source of, of surprise and sustenance for for people. It, 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 they give us answers to questions we hardly knew that we had to ask. So how can you know 
somebody sort of veto and say, well, it's not in the nation's interest when research is actually very important? Well, actually, that, that's right. So once you go down the path of writing grants on the basis of a, of a government position or a, a notion that a government might have about what research is, then that's not research at all. Because as you say, research is about opening up new questions, opening up new ways of seeing things, new dimensions, new possibilities. And they might not at that point in time be particularly relevant to the national interest at all. Um, so, you know, I think in, in that um, Australian Book Review article that, that came out this week, one of the things I talk about there is so many of um, the things we take for granted now were at one point not considered to be in the national interest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, indigenous you know, communities to land rights to and, and I guess the, the, the stolen generation and women having the right to vote, you know, all of those things. Exactly. And if you look at the campaigns around all those basic um, human rights, we'd say now, um, mm. at the time there was a lot of uh, debate and discussion and pushback and overt hostility in some quarters, definitely arguing that those sorts of issues were not in the national interest. But now, a century later, obviously we see things like, you know, um, rights to vote, um, citizenship, um, all that sort of thing as fundamental. So I think you just have to be very careful of how you frame this notion. Now, I should say for those um, listening that, you know, for in, an, in a grant, you always had to put, you know, how it did benefit the Australian um, community or Australian culture and, and society, and that was fine. A benefit is different to a national interest. Mm. A national interest sounds much more political. And, and I guess, you know, the fact that, um, that, that the, the cut to that um, grants in humanities was done by stealth and without providing uh, robust academic reasons is a way that sort of undermines the independent and rigorous peer review assessment for these applications for funding as well. Well, that's right. So, you know, we have in Australia one of the very best peer assessment processes where in order to get a grant, you go through a really rigorous independent assessment of your uh, application and that's what makes it so um, world-class and other countries look at our system and, and you know with envy because it's a very good system uh to then have a minister come across over and um, um, you know decide without giving reasons let alone giving academic reasons um you know um vetoing those and saying well they're not in the national interest or we don't particularly prove them for whatever reason um personal whimsical is really problematic so mm. you know we, the research community really came out very unanimously and fully um, against that action. Um, the minister can do that legislatively. It is within the power of the minister to veto, but it's not typically or usually used. And um, one of the things that in the humanities uh, research community well, we want to do is to basically question this power of the minister to do that um, in some of the medical areas and the medical mm -hmm. research funds, um, the, the minister, the, the, the sort of um, criteria around the minister's actions are much more vague and they've never done it. Yes. So what we're asking for is the level playing field here for humanities research. Mm -hmm. Joy, Judith, Judith here. Um, I'm, I'm just interested in 
how long it would take, uh, say, an academic or group of academics to work up one of these grants? Like how many how many months, years are we talking about to just to write oh, it? Geez. Yes, well, this is one of the big issues that is constantly the, uh, you know, gripe of academics. So, look, you would be looking at at least a year, if not longer, to really put together a, a substantial um, application. Um, I know some people do a rush job and they can whip it up in a matter of months, you know, but... <laughs> that would be unusual, I expect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and there was a... Um, a actually, this week there was a parliamentary inquiry into research and one of the observations that inquiry made was the ridiculously long time it takes to complete one of these um, applications. They're around about... Your average would be in the order of about 60 to 120 pages. Mm. Um, so this is a substantial amount of work. It's a substantial amount of work by the universities who, who will have to administer it by other colleagues who mentor these applications. Um, I mean, it goes through a huge number of people and processes when, uh, you know, until it's finally submitted. So you are looking at a very long and intensive process of submission. Um, and so then in order, and then to get into the top 18%, uh, and then be vetoed is really devastating for the researchers obviously but it's devastating for the process as well that you know that would all happen and then a minister um, without reason coming in and saying well I don't particularly like this project or the sound of it you, you know it's not clear whether the minister read all pages mm. of every application he vetoed. <laughs> and the other issue um, is that Simon is gone Simon Senator Simon Birmingham's gone now the current minister for education Dan Tehan has had agreed to introduce a new system, obviously, where applicants will be made aware if a minister vetoed the application with that provision of the so-called national interest that you were talking about, the national interest test. Um, and I think you mentioned in your article that there needs to be, for, um, the, the national interest obviously has to be scrutinised. You've got three fundamental reasons there that you include. The, the, the one thing I, I guess I wanted to ask you was, is it ironic that federal governments now have increased pressure on universities such as Melbourne universities to rely on international student income instead of, you know, mm. yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we're having, the sector, I think, across the board is obviously having to look and has had for many years look elsewhere beyond government funding to resource its operations, um, and that is now typically done through international fee-paying students. Um, so that's where much of the activity of um, universities is in recruiting. Uh, so, you know, we're all looking for more money, um, and um, that's right. So it, it's, it's this kind of action is inexplicable when there's not much around, There's not uh, the pie's not getting bigger, uh, and we have to redistribute resources, and to have funding cut in this way by the back door, so to speak, is, you know, really problematic. Um, it must be so discouraging. I'm sorry. It must be so discouraging. Oh, it's discouraging because people then start to lose confidence in the mm. process. And that's the worst thing that can happen, actually. Um, people start to feel, well, what is the point if the system uh, ultimately relies on the minister's judgment 
And as I said earlier, that's not research. Research is really pushing the boundaries. And one of the points I make in that article is to say that, you know, in humanities research, the impact is not obvious and immediate. It's often long-term. So you make, you know, you do research today, but its impact might be in three, five or, you know, ten years' time in terms of maybe policy or maybe um, new ideas, particularly around, you know, issues around climate change or issues around um, other social problems. So, you know, when you have to justify the immediate it's, it's always problematic with research. You know, it, it, it's, it's never just so simple as over an overnight success of something coming together and solving a problem. And that is to do... Um, that's relevant to the sciences as well. But um, so, you know, I think when you look at research and what it is, it, it, it's not always an overnight solution to something. Um, so, you know, we're looking... So, so I think you have to look at long-term benefits when you look at um, research and long-term investment, really. Mm. Uh, and and, and, and there are other academics, you know, uh, I did see in the Australian Big Review that, uh, you know, academics such as Ian Donaldson, um, Margaret Gardner from Monash and even Philip Mead had made comments, and I think I mentioned at the start of the, the interview that, you know, the humanities are the heart of our culture and, and of our knowledge. It might not be immediate, but long-term some of those humanities and, and the searches are quite uh, important. Um, and we're, we're quickly running out of time, but if, if anybody was interested in, in sort of looking at that and, and more importantly following up on those other three grants that were approved finally, where can they go to um, yeah, read your article and, and maybe find out a bit more about the, uh, the, the what you would call a controversy, really, the Australian Research Council controversy? Yes, yes that's right. So, well, um, the Australian... Book review um, is, has the article that we've been talking about, the latest issue, um, and then there's a, a forum as well of, as you say, other academics um, discussing the question. I mean, it really is about academic freedom mm. and freedom to research. And as I said in the article, it's more the bigger, bigger question is where we want to head in a, as a nation in the future and how researchers will help us get there. And you have to foster an innovative and imaginative research culture. Uh, so I think that's the core and that's what we'd all be supporting. Um, so, yeah, Australian Book Review latest issue would have all that. We, we will put that on our website. Um, Joy, uh, we appreciate you joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Oh, thank you very much. It's been lovely to chat. Professor Joy Demusi there. She is a uh, Laureate Fellow and Professor of History at the University of Melbourne. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 
312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Wednesday Breakfast. And quickly before we jump into our next interview, I want to mention that we've got a... Um, in relation to the interview that we had earlier with Debbie Brennan about um, the poster honouring Ray Jackson, there's going to be a weekend of radical intersectional struggle honouring Ray Jackson, Rajari and Working Class Warrior for Justice. That's happening at the Maritime Union of Australia, 46 to 54 Ireland Street in West Melbourne. Um, on Saturday from midday, there's going to be an exhibition of artwork and 2pm is the official Melbourne poster launch. Uh, and then on Sunday, from 10 a.m., exhibition opens again. And uh, throughout the day, from 10.30, there'll be a day of workshops and political movement building, which is really fantastic. Now, on the phone, uh, one of the brightest stars in the new poetry scene by Junkie. Uh, Coralie Demetriatis is a writer of poetry, uh, prose and opinion, a whole lot of different places, the age... Um, other places that aren't the age. <laughs> uh, she's just come back from a European tour funded by the Cypriot Ministry of Education, Coralie Dimitriadis. Um, um, you may know her from her bestseller and there's a language warning on the title of this book, Love Fuck Poems. We know her as a former presenter on 3CR's Spoken Word. Welcome back, Coralie. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. Um, so we're, we're talking about the, the novel in verse that you have released in Cyprus and it's going to be receiving its Australian release um, on December the 1st, titled Just Give Me the Pills. Um, it's, it's incredibly personal, this book. Um, how, how was it um, writing? Um, well, uh, I think I've had a really interesting experience coming to the arts. You know, I was very artistic when I was young, but I was encouraged... Uh, kind of almost pressured by culture to follow a more traditional job in um, accounting and computing. Um, and I got married quite young at 22 um, and kind of did everything that was expected of me. And then after I had my daughter at around 27, I started to really question um, things. And that's when my writing started to um, come back. Um, and I, um, it was kind of like a volcanic eruption in a way, and um, I wrote a lot of poetry um, to kind of um, make sense of what I was going through and to liberate myself and to um, get on the journey of finding out who I am and what I want from my life and claiming my feminist voice. So in a way, yeah, it is deeply um, raw, um, and I think that my writing is raw because um, I went from doing everything that I was expecting, everything I was told um, to the complete opposite. And so I think my writing has become that way because of it. Mm. Yeah, in, the, um, in the, the poem Surrender, you mentioned the good Greek girl and you've done a lot of, um, a lot of poetry surrounding the, the, the spectre of this good Greek girl. Um, who is she? What, did, what does she mean to you? Um, the good Greek girl is a... He's a Greek girl that gets married, um, has kids, um, and stays home to look after those kids. And is a is you know she allows the husband to be the man, and um, she kind of takes a backseat to um, his um, career. Um, he's he he is the man, and and being a good Greek girl is just about. The most important thing to a good Greek girl is to be married. So if she's not married, she can, she's considered a 
failure or she feels like a failure. So there's this huge emphasis on marriage um, without um, any emphasis on, you know, getting to know yourself and getting to know what, what you want from your life. Yeah, the good great girl like i'm certain there's there's a lot more obviously to your mother but she's one of the char- uh, one of the people who features very strongly in the book alongside the the figure of your daughter um how are, are you do do you cast your mother in the in the role of the good great girl is there something um that sort of makes her distinct from that yeah i mean like just Give Me the Pills is a novel in verse, so I do like to distance myself from the characters. Mm, yeah. But um, the the mother character, yes, she is. She is a good Greek girl, and I think that, um, look, there, there have been lots of pressures on women in our culture, but over time things have become more relaxed. Like, what, like the poetry in Just Give Me the Pills spans 10 years, and, um, and so I do think that today, um, you know, there's less pressure on you know and it's not just greek women it's women from migrant backgrounds but particularly in greek culture there is less of a push to to be married than there was say when i got married you know like 10 you know more than 10 years ago now Mm. 20 years ago so um you know so things are getting better but i think there's still um you know for example you know when we have family gatherings um, you know, why is it that the women are the ones that have to clean up the table? You know, like the men just, you know, don't have to do that. There's still that kind of patriarchy within our community that women are the ones that are meant to be in the kitchen, you know, keeping their house clean, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, when it comes to the mother character, yeah, you know, she, she is a good Greek girl. And and the and the daughter characters trying to trying to fight that and trying to go well actually you know I don't want to have that life that you had I want to I want to claim my voice I don't want to just sit behind the kitchen sink. Yeah. Now speaking about broader sort of social change within the Greek and the Cypriot community here in Melbourne or here in Australia really, um, you you've received a lot of support from what it seems like institutions like the um, the launch which is happening um, on Sunday the second. Is happening at the Greek Centre. Um, your your trip, uh, your tour around Europe was funded by the Cypriot Ministry of Education. Um, how about the 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 community, um, the the public community? What's their response been to um, just give me the pills? Um, look, uh, you know, I mean, just give me the pills hasn't hit the shelves yet, but you know, oh. I've been active in the arts scene for the last ten years in Melbourne, and initially, you know, the Greek community didn't want to have a bar of me. And, um, you know, what happened was the, um, uh, and I'm talking about the, the, the organisation, but then, you know, the board the board members changed, the more younger members came onto the board, and then they started acknowledging and supporting my work and, and um, agreeing that, you know, these conversations need to be had, you know. Um, I do have a love-hate relationship with my culture. There's things that I love about it, there's things that I hate about it. And, you know, when we love something, we have to talk about those uncomfortable things as well, you know, so we can have a good relationship. And um, so, you know, in, in that way, the Greek community have been really good in going, you know, hey, you know, some of this stuff is critical of us, but, you know, um, we have to, you know, have these conversations. In terms of the public, though, you know, I would have to say that, and it's not just Greeks, it's generally... You know, I think that people either really, really hate me or really, really love me. I get a lot of hate 
um, for, for what I do and a, and a lot of love from other people. So because my poetry is so raw and honest, some people just, you know, or not even just my poetry, my article writing or, you know, I've been told, you know, by men that, that I want, you know, they want to push me off the Westgate, like really extreme stuff, you know. Um, and um, a lot of political um, commentators will say that, you know, they get hate mail and stuff. So, you know, for me, I, even with my poetry, you know, I get really extreme responses. Hmm. Now, I'd love to talk... I know we, we talked a bit about how um, the Greek community and the Greek Cypriot community has moved forwards um, in recent times, but there's a poem in your book that's a bit more about the context of um, the community whilst you were married and um, just as you um, headed into your divorce. Um, dead or divorced? I was wondering if we'd be able to ask you to give us a taste of just um, give me the pills by reading that poem. Yeah. Um, so this poem was um, written after I'd left my marriage and I became very estranged from my family um, because that was the only way that I could deal with what was going on and the, um, you know, and 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 just to kind of claim and find out who I am. So, um, yeah, so this is one of the poems in the book. It's called Dead or Divorced. It's better to be dead than divorced because then you can be mourned, adored, adored exactly the way they wanted you to be. That's it. Write me off. And finally, we can leave on the same page. Mother, father, sister, brother, the happiest of wog families. You can dress me in your elegant eloquence, the daughter of your dreams. And the rest can be a mere nightmare, one that can be woken from with a strong Greek cup of coffee. It's better to be dead than divorced because their misery can be short-lived and depression has an end point. You won't have to grieve the gossiping Greeks, hide underneath your solid house of bricks. Shh, I won't tell if you won't. Or there's nothing on the May God rest her soul. She was a good orthodox girl. She went to university, got a business degree, married in the orthodox church. Two well-behaved children. Poor things. A big house in the suburbs, right on the river. May God rest her soul. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Just Give Me the Pills is released on the 1st of December and the launch will be at the uh, Greek uh, community of Melbourne and Victoria on Sunday the 2nd, December at 6.30, and that's at 168 Lonsdale Street. There'll be poetry, there'll be music, We've been speaking to Coralie Dimitriadis. Coralie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to 3CR. We're going to go straight into our next interview, uh, which will be with Mary Stewart. 
And this is going to be about uh, the setup of Australia's first all-women's museum. So we've got Mary on the line. Uh, good morning, Mary. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Ah, fantastic. Sorry, it's a little bit of fiddling on the tech panel. Um, I suppose I haven't said the name of your institution. Uh, her place is the world's, oh, sorry, Australia's first female museum. Could you kind of tell us where the idea kind of came from and how it's manifested itself? Well, Her Place Women's Museum Australia was um, established uh, a couple of years ago, but it's not the first women's museum, I have mm. to say. There is a museum that celebrates the contribution of women pioneers in Outback Australia in Alice Springs. Ah. However, we, we wanted to uh, establish a place that recognises and and celebrates the contributions that women make across all aspects of our social, business, political, entrepreneurial life in this country. That's wonderful. So I believe um, Her Place has really had recently a lot of exhibitions and it's finally settled down in, um, is it Clarendon Terrace? We have. We have been seeking to um, raise... Uh, the capacity and funding to have a permanent uh, bricks-and-mortar home. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to date received quite important funding from the Victorian government as well as some funding from a range of um, you know, philanthropic organisations and some businesses and as well as some important contributions, seed funding from uh, a number of Victorian unions. And uh, we have um, had a a series of regional exhibitions that we have done this Mm. year. So we had an exhibition in Morwell, one in Ballarat, which is still going, and um, one in Pakenham. And... uh, and these, these exhibitions have been very well received. Yeah. And, and it is... It's, sorry, yes, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, I was wondering, on this note, uh, f- women in history, especially in Australian history, I know going through school, I never really got a focus on females in history, and I think they're very much a silenced or, or forgotten part. Uh, how does Her Place kind of bring these women, I suppose, to the forefront and try to re-educate our, our culture? Well, that's, that's our reason for being, mm. if you like. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the traditional cultural institutions do not adequately reflect uh, women. Mm-hmm. And you don't have women, um, women form half the population and they don't form, uh, you know, a fraction of the population, but the, uh, the representation of women's stories and women's contributions and women's art and women's sort of um, uh, endeavours are not equally reflected in our major um, uh, cultural institutions. And for that reason, we have established Her Place Women's Museum so that we can... Uh, focus and the women as part of a 
uh, a whole range of issues relating to uh, gender equity. And I suppose it, uh, it plays off that idea of if young girls can see themselves or, or see these stories, they can then uh, go and follow their own stories and kind of seek their own empowerment. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, I think Will's got a question to you, so I'm just going to chuck it to Will. Hi, I'm just really excited about um, going to see the new exhibitions. Um, how does the museum reflect the different struggles of women across identities, women queer women, women with disabilities, women of colour? Well, we, we seek to uh, be representative of all women and uh, we haven't... Uh, we, we're very fledgling and we're very, you know, we're, we're very young and new and we have got a lot of way, a lot of uh, growing to do. Uh, but we would um, we would want to ensure that we are being representative of uh, the contribution that women make across all aspects of society. Mm. And well, talking about that, what's uh, your recent uh, exhibition is actually currently running? I was just wondering if you could kind of let us know uh, a little bit about what that's focusing on at the moment. Oh well, it's um, it's running down in Ballarat mm -hmm. and there are 10 women who are featured in that exhibition. The exhibitions uh, tend to be both um, uh, they're obviously portable exhibitions mm -hmm. but they tend to be uh, both visual and um, and written and also there are uh, artefacts where these are available and the, we try for anyone who is currently alive, we um, do a visual recording for people who have deceased. We, uh, women who have deceased, we um, have uh, visual um, uh, video of uh, the story of their contribution. And it's it's intended to also, we also at the same time we run a program for our schools so that we uh, seek to provide education material to both primary and secondary schools on, um, you know, gender equity issues. And we put a lot of, um, we put a lot of effort into uh, wanting to engage the public in uh, public programs. So it's it's not just a static exhibition. It's yeah, it sounds very interactive. Interactive. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's wonderful. I'm so sorry we can't talk longer. We've got a bit of a rush show, so I will um, wrap it up there. But thank you so much for coming on and telling us. I think it's such an important narrative to get out there. So I really appreciate you um, coming on and giving us your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I do hope that uh, next time we have an exhibition in Melbourne, we'll try and make sure that we get you along to see it. Oh, no, of course, of course. I'm on the road to Ballarat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you later. And that was our last interview. Um, we're going to have a community... <laughs> our last one. Oh, not our last one. Uh, we're going to have a community <laughs> interview and then we're... Sorry, community announcements. Dean, you've stuffed me up. <laughs> and then we will be back. One moment. In the summer I went swimming in the summer. Yank the summer.
Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control of the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. Come along to this free screening on Thursday the 6th of December at the Greek Centre, 168 Lonsdale Street, City. To book your free ticket, search Try Booking and El Dorado or go to the Greek Resistance Bulletin Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. So um, this week, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton announced the federal government's intention to introduce changes to the citizen stripping laws. Isn't that scary? Just, I mean, even just, the term the citizen yes. <laughs> stripping laws that would make Australia's laws, and this is a quote, the most expansive in the world. And the, I'll have to get rid of my second passport. Well, I've, I've had similar thoughts. Anyway, joining us on the line to talk about this is Dr. Sangeeta Pillay, She's a constitutional lawyer and a senior research associate at the Andrew and Renata Calder Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. So welcome to 3CR, Dr. Pillay. Thanks for having me, Judith. Yes, and uh, also always appreciate people coming in. It's a little bit early, but maybe you know <laughs> people get up at different times, I guess. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Now, you've written uh, the article for The Conversation, just published uh, called The Latest Citizen Stripping Plan Risks Statelessness, Indefinite Detention and Constitutional Challenges. And it's already touched two of us here on the panel this morning (laughs) who have dual citizenship. Um, So I'm just curious. I mean, you've talked about these being the most expansive in the world. And are you talking about in liberal democracies, democratic countries when you say that? Yeah, it, there's been a relatively recent phenomenon in liberal democracies of um, moving towards 
citizenship stripping laws um, as a device to um, to address national security concerns. Um, so, um, if you think about countries that are often used as comparators to Australia, Canada, and the UK, um, just before before Australia introduced these laws first in 2015, we saw similar laws introduced in Canada and the UK. Um, they haven't been proved to be super effective in any of these um, in any of these countries. Like there's a, there's a lot of other national security devices that that exist, and I've kind of written on this academically. I've like analysed. Um, the effectiveness of the laws in all three countries, and Canada's actually taken the step of repealing their um, citizenship stripping oh. laws because it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't doing much um, in in that in that context. Well, that that's else. very interesting to know that uh, one country at least has moved in the other direction. Yes. Uh, but the laws in Australia, as you say, have been introduced quite recently, mm-hmm. and uh, so when were they introduced? So 2015. Um, so it. The, the laws were first introduced in the wake of um, the, the Martin Place attack um, right. by Manharan Monas in, in Sydney. So that was 2014, and mm-hmm. one, it, it took a year to get um, a, a bill kind of finalised and, and passed through Parliament, and end of December 2015, we first had these laws introduced here. So what are the current grounds for having your Australian citizenship removed? On, on what basis could our citizenship, deans and mine, <laughs> and others, of course. On what basis could could it be removed? So there's two broad ways that you can use you you can lose your citizenship at the moment. Um, and you're you're, you're right to like it, it only affects dual citizens at the moment. So if you have a sole Australian citizenship, you can do whatever you want, and um, you might go to jail for a very long time, but you won't lose your citizenship. Only dual citizens can can lose their citizenship under the current laws. Um, if you're in Australia, like like you guys are, um, you, the only way that you can lose your citizenship is by being convicted of a particular list of national security offences that are supposed to be the most serious offences, and whether that's the case for all of the offences is a matter for, for debate, but um, it's supposed to be the more serious national security offences and also you have to be sentenced to at least six years in, in prison. Um, and if both of those things happen and you're also a dual citizen, um, the Minister for Home Affairs has a discretion to revoke your citizenship. So Peter Dutton at Peter the moment. Dutton. Yeah, the I, moment. I imagine yeah, it, would be, it would be Peter Dutton. Um, there is another. There is a way that you can lose your citizenship without the need for a conviction, but that only really applies to people that are outside Australia. So, if you are in a foreign country and um, you fight for um, a country that's at war with Australia, or you fight for a terrorist organisation, or um, you attack or threaten a foreign government, you do things like that. Um, you can lose your citizenship without being convicted of an offence. Um, and this kind of happens automatically and you have a body called the Citizenship Loss Board that's not even mentioned in the legislation. Mm. A body called the Citizenship Loss Board that sits down and works out where the dual citizens overseas have lost their citizenship in, in this fashion. So that doesn't require a conviction. It's actually a bit constitutionally dicey. but It sounds um, very dicey. <laughs> <laughs> And the problem is, like, there are, there are real constitutional questions about that um, that part of the legislation. But 
the people that it's used against are not here, so it's difficult to actually bring a case in in court challenging um, challenging the provision. Um, that's the only that's the only provision that part of the law that we've seen used. We've never seen the conviction based um, power to revoke citizenship used. We've seen the power to the like you know we've seen the conduct based. Um, citizenship stripping provision operate, the government says, nine times, but against people that have shown no interest in coming back to Australia, so mm. we've never kind of had that question. And Sangeeta, I guess you mentioned that the, 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 in 2015 these uh, stripping laws were introduced, um, but I guess it's always a, a time such as this. I mean, last week there was that, the, the arrest of these people in Melbourne who, in relation to terror charges, um, and it seems like Every time something like that happens, these sort of um, uh, announcements by politicians to whip up fear and, I guess, um, use divisive fear tactics come up around this time. Is that is that sort of when, uh, you know, do you find that, that when things like this happen? I mean, it's been three years, but now all of a sudden this is back up as a topic because it seems like it's um, reactive to what happened in Melbourne. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, um, and that was the case kind of across, the three countries that I looked at that introduced laws like this. Um, we kind of, um, I wrote with um, with Professor George Williams on, on this topic and we, we went um, and looked at if these laws aren't having an effect on, like if, if there's no, if there's not much practical that they're adding to the National Security Toolkit, why introduce them at all? And we found that it, it typically is in response to something happening, some sort of um, threats, a lone wolf attack, or um, some some sort of national security issue arising, um, like just before the laws are introduced, they seem to serve the effect of um, expressing a position of of strength about what citizenship and national identity mean, and sending a strong message to um, people that step outside of those lines by acting in, in deviant or threatening ways that they're not. And uh, now, the part of the community. Yeah, sorry. So now we have new laws being proposed. What changes would these new laws make? Um, so two key changes. Um, the first is that so at the moment I said that it is necessary um, to know that a person is a dual citizen before um, before citizenship revocation can be used as a device against them. Under the proposed new laws. Um, you, that standard will be lowered. So what will need to happen is that the Minister for Home Affairs, so at the moment Peter Dutton, um, would have to be reasonably sure. Like, we think it's reasonably likely that a person has a foreign citizenship. But um, That's very odd. Mm. It seems to me that for its countries that would determine, the other country would determine that citizenship. Yeah, so the minister has no power to determine conclusively whether a person does have a foreign citizenship or not. If, if the legislation is framed in a way that purports to give the minister that power, it'll probably run into constitutional problems. Um, another, like, another possibility is that it won't. It'll just say that you don't have to be a dual citizen. What you need is for the minister to think it's likely that you have a foreign citizenship, and, and that makes it very confusing because, as we saw from the like the Section 44 citizenship fiasco about people in Parliament, it's sometimes very difficult for people to tell whether they have a foreign citizenship or not. You can get one through your grandparents, through your parents, yes, marriage, it's, your grandparents' mm-hmm. marriage. It depends on the... So it, it, you can have people that have like had a connection to... Born in Australia, have a connection to Australia for many generations, but still have a foreign citizenship and very well might not know. Um, 
Yes. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I mean, there's so many uh, issues that this raises, and particularly the matter of statelessness. And I think that's something that we'll need to pursue at, at another time. And, and plus, you know, whose interests are served by these new laws? You know, yeah. who benefits from that? I, all I can see is the prison industrial complex who gets to have more prisons. <laughs> But um, uh, thank you so much for coming on this morning, and I know we'd love to talk to you again at, in a future date. So um, please thank you for your time. I mean, thank you for your time. Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Agita. And that was um, Dr. Sagita Pillay, a constitutional lawyer and a research associate at uh, the Andrew and Renata Calder Center for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales, raising lots of issues that we need to explore further. Yeah, and for our last interview, we're actually going you know, to buzz straight in uh, to Annette from the Boomerang Alliance. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming in studio. Thanks um, for having me. So I suppose this is in response to that absolutely shocking image of a dead sperm whale found on the coastline of Indonesia uh, last week or the week before, I believe, mm. um, found with six kilograms of plastic in it, yes. basically. Um, so we've got you on today to talk about uh, the dangers of plastic pollution. I was wondering if you could first give us a picture of how bad it's gotten. It's, um, it's everywhere and there's a lot of it. Mm. And uh, just because our oceans are vast and because uh, plastic, uh, um, because of the sun and the just being exposed to the weather, it mm -hmm. breaks up into more like smaller and smaller pieces. Um, it, um, it gets t to become a problem that uh, cleanup is really, really I mean, we do need to clean up, but that's not a solution. And um, there's, um, I mean, it's always difficult to say exactly how much is out there, but uh, there's one really good study that uh, had a good crack at it and um, uh, came up with a number. Mm. 5.25 trillion mm. pieces of plastic just on the surface of the oceans worldwide. That is, uh, it's just, that's just insane. And we can't wrap our brains around that. No. But basically, um, the other good thing to think about is uh, if you're going out shopping and uh, over the last 10 years you've noticed that things are more wrapped, mm. that's, that is true. Mm. There is uh, the increase in production of plastic products. Uh, the proportion that goes to packaging has increased dramatically it's now 40 percent of all plastic production goes to packaging mm -hmm. and as we know most of that stuff mm -hmm. enters the waste cycle within the first year of being pro, uh, pro produced yeah. and that's put like the production of plastic is increasing but also the proportion of that plastic that uh, we use less time for less time is increasing so that puts a, a double whammy pressure on our waste management in the entire world so we're really not providing, we're not providing any infrastructure for a culture that actually uh, respects plastic or, or treats it, you know. Well, we respect plastic. Respects, we respect just don't the environment. We don't, well. Yeah, we don't uh, respect our environment. Yeah. And, uh, the, we don't have, um, if we're picking up a toothpick that's wrapped in a plastic sleeve, mm. we are not thinking about, oh, my God, why are we doing this? Yeah. Where or, is this going? Or kiwi fruit. Four pieces of kiwi fruit in a plastic container. Or even those plastic tags yeah. um, that are on the fruit. Yeah. Um, mm. Where is all of this going? Um, sure, we have got good landfill sites, but we're running out of space and yeah. it's really expensive. What are we going to do? Um, there's a big push for combustion. Mm. 
mm-hmm. basically just um, burn the lot and call it a, a circular economy because you are at least recovering the energy yeah. of the plastic. But that is so short-sighted and so mm-hmm. dangerous. Um, we need to really change the way... We need to become more smart about how we are using plastic. Plastic is marvelous. Yeah. We, we probably will not unless, I mean, in the future maybe, but for the next 50 years, we are not getting around using plastic. We are depending on plastic for mm-hmm. so many things. But we need to become more smart. How are we using it? Um, are we putting, um, um, it's like the, the, we need to be product responsible. Yep. We need to have uh, checks and balances in a place that people don't come up with these ridiculous little plastic pieces, yeah. you know, yeah. that uh, don't go anywhere. And uh, we need to do onshore recycling properly. Mm, okay, okay. So I suppose that's what was my next question: is where where do we go from here on a kind of international level, on a like Australian level, and kind mm. of on a local level? Yeah. Okay. Internationally, there's quite a few things finally being done. Um, Maybe Sir David Attenborough's um, Blue Planet series <laughs> has, uh, I think, shaken up the UK and the EU quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so they are going to ban single-use plastics um, in oh, was it two, 2030. So that's the EU. Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. Over here in Australia, we have got um, we've got a lack of leadership. There's not a lot happening. We've got uh, contender deposit schemes in most states, mm-hmm. except for Victoria and Tasmania at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Queensland just got it. Western Australia will get it next year, end of next year. Mm-hmm. But um, other than that, and we've got some plastic bag bands which are being floated and kind of the industry tries to get around by just producing bags that are just a little bit thicker. Mm. So, and the, the fiasco with the... the the big companies are not doing enough. Just yeah. think about what Coles did with the plastic ban, the self-imposed plastic ban and backflipped. And so um, what we do need um, or what we do have is a fantastic grassroots um, movement. Um, there is so many there's small businesses that are offering to have their glass containers reused and washed and returned and there is uh, cafes, there's responsible cafes, there's so many great cleanup groups. There's Beach Patrol in Melbourne who are doing fantastic work, Sea Shepherd. Um, there's just so many awesome boomerang bags. Um, lots of stuff is happening, but we need um, government um, on all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of councils are really getting progressive and want to do the right thing. Some of them are going down towards waste to energy, which is, you know, incineration, which is probably not, not the best thing mm. um but um yes so we need to i think we need to become more organized we need to become um spreading the uh, knowledge about plastic pollution what the mm-hmm. issue is how yeah. big it is and what we can do so if you're just at home if you're just looking around next time you're going shopping next time you're going out just BYO your things. Yeah. Have your yeah. bottle with you. Have your um, cup with you. Your bags. Your bags. Um, that is massive. That's already, yeah. you're already doing great job. Um, and uh, then join cleanup organizations. Join um, also organizations like the one I'm with uh, is Boomerang Alliance um, to um, help us push for legislation because that's what we do. We go and talk to the MPs. We do 
uh, initiate uh, rallies uh, where we push for change and effective change. Well, it sounds like we definitely need a shift in the cultural paradigm. Uh, thank yes. you so much, Annette, for coming on and talking to us. Uh, we're going to have to, unfortunately, wrap up the show. Keep talking to it for ages. But um, this is Wednesday Breakfast. Thanks for joining See us. You See, you See you all next week. See you next week. Bye. Yeah. In the summer, I went swimming in the summer. Yes, the summer. Summer brings swimming. Summer brings picnics in the park. And summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.